Welcome. You're listening to the Everlasting Business Podcast. I am your co-host, Greg Schoenberg, a leadership coach and financial executive with years of experience under my belt. And I'm Ari Mizell, a productivity coach passionate about optimizing work and life. Together, we're here to delve deep into the timeless principles that fortify businesses for the long haul. Each week, we take you on a thought-provoking journey. We explore the secrets behind the centuries-long success of iconic brands to the innovative strategies driving the business of the future. From understanding the power of stress inoculation and incentives to unmasking the challenges of the present day business world, we're here to provide valuable insights and practical tips. So whether you're an entrepreneur just starting out or an established executive, our conversations aim to inspire, educate, and lay the foundations for a prosperous future in business. So buckle up and join us on this exciting journey. And let's together uncover the lessons that make businesses truly everlasting. All right, we are recording. Um, I think that there is no shortage of great lessons to be learned, Ari, from your experience as an EMT. And um, our latest proof point of that, I think, occurred during a Voxer exchange we had where you were describing uh, your approach to patient care. And maybe another way of putting that in a medical context is bedside manner. But of course, um, dealing with people in a certain way is something that I think as an EMT, you probably have put in a lot of thought into. So uh, if you would, tell our listeners about exactly what happened here. Yeah, thanks, Frank. So I want to frame this entire conversation with one thing first, because this this is a, a highly applicable business lesson, in, in my opinion, I know in yours as well. Sure. One of my mentors, uh, Joe Polish, who is an, a marketing guru, always has said this particular quote that always sticks with me. And he's talking about sales and marketing, but still, he says, uh, people don't buy from you because they understand you. People buy from you because they feel understood. People don't buy from you because they understand you. They buy from you because they feel understood, essentially, by you. Right. Okay. And that's what sort of as a differentiator. So I think that that's an important way to sort of you know tee this up. So I have worked in seven different EMS systems over the the 12 years that I've been doing this as a volunteer and also as a per diem uh, employee, or not employee, but a per diem. And every EMS system is different. And one of the big things that you see is a difference in different systems is how much time you get to spend with any individual patient, right? So if you're working in New York City and there are five to 6,000 EMS calls a day, you're not spending very much time with a patient. Plus, it's a very quick ride to a hospital. If you're working in some place like upstate New York, where I've, I've also done stuff in the Hudson Valley, and you're getting you know four or five calls a week, and the drive to the hospital could be 40 minutes, you're spending a lot of time with a patient, and you're also probably seeing them a lot more. And then you have a system like where we are now in Princeton, where the volume is pretty decent. You know, we get eight to 10 calls a day. We do about 50 calls a week, but it is still a relatively small community. And the ride to the hospital is, you know, generally 
maybe 10 to 15 minutes. So we do actually get to interact, spend more time, be in people's homes, talk to them, and sometimes we have repeat people, uh, as the industry likes to call them, frequent flyers, but that generally has a negative connotation. I could see why. <laughs> frequent flyers are typically the people who like call EMS services a lot, and it's usually not a big deal. Right. Uh, but there are people who do go through the system often, and they are legitimate, so... There's no rewards program. Correct. There definitely is not. Uh, no punch card. So, backing up a little bit before I get into this story, actually. I started my first company when I was 12, and I started a second when I was 16, and a third when I was 17. And they were all in the tech space. First one was website design, and then it was a web service, and then uh, technology consulting stuff. And I had friends who would work with me sometimes, and... I was 16, 17 years old at the time, and I was doing some major like tech installations for homes and businesses, phone systems, stereo systems, uh, computer networking, when you actually had to run cable for that kind of thing, like all sorts of stuff that I kind of learned on the fly. And I always took the stance that customer service trumped technical ability to a point, right? And so there were definitely going to be people who were more technically capable than me. But I thought that I could out-customer service them, essentially, right? Be available faster, fix problems more, understand the issues that people were dealing with and what they were, where they were coming from to try to relate and to try to really provide that. So back to EMS. So, I, and so the point is that's been sort of a tendermite for a very long time. So back to EMS. Uh, it's very, very easy in EMS, especially in busy systems, to, and especially because of the high-stress nature of what EMS involves, to kind of uh, humorize, or uh, not humorize, I guess not the word, but add some humor and, and maybe take a little bit of seriousness away from the situation and a, a little bit of a shoulder shrugging. That, that's a, that's, there's a lot of apathy, unfortunately, in EMS. And it, most of the times it's often justified because you see people who just overuse the system or they don't have legitimate medical problems or they, you know, whatever it might be. I once responded to a call because somebody saw a spider in their house. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and it's very easy, especially in something like that, to just be like, oh, this is just a BS thing. Like, uh, don't pay any attention to it. But sometimes that's a cry for help. And at the same time, you have to run that balance that you can't invest yourself necessarily in all these people over and over and over because you'll just burn out. So the other night, there was a, a call. Actually, it was, it was like first thing in the morning. There was a call for a person who was, according to the dispatch information, which is generally pretty inaccurate, it, they were an elderly woman who was having uh, stroke-like symptoms, was in and out of consciousness, vomiting. It sounded pretty bad. <laughs> and we got there, and we were met by the adult daughter of the how, of the of the patient, and basically she stopped us, and she's like, wait, let me just tell you what's going on first, because she's really angry that I called you guys. Okay, <laughs> I can handle that. So we go in, and yeah, sure enough, she was like, I don't want you here. And like, don't, you know, why did she call? I don't want you people here. Like, just leave me alone. I just want to go back to sleep. And we can't really do that. You know, once we're there, we kind of have to, like, do some things. We can't just leave, obviously. And she did not want to hear it. And I detected an accent. And so I asked what the accent was of the, the daughter, and she said, it's German. I don't speak German. I took German for two years in high school, and it was, it was uh, a very bad experience. <laughs> but I managed to eke out a few words. 
and it was the weirdest thing. It was like I, it was almost like dropping cold water on somebody. You know, all of a sudden it was like she stopped the ranting and the being angry and stuff, and just looked at me and let me start talking to her. And and she got very friendly and warmed up immediately. It, it back in English. Uh, no, in German. Oh, so you knew enough German to I, have... I could understand when you know, I would understand what she was saying, and then the words... What, you know, it's the funny thing. is actually a lot of the words that kept coming out of me were actually Yiddish. I don't really speak <laughs> Yiddish either, but I think I've heard more Yiddish in my life, I guess. <laughs> so, um, so I, like, I'm, I, I've, um, I started asking her some questions, and I was throwing, like, words, you know. I was, like, instead of saying what day is it, I just started naming the days. Like, Sontag, Montag, whatever. So, uh, and immediately established sort of a rapport. And she let me start assessing her, and I started taking her blood pressure and everything. And everything, it was actually, she was okay. Uh, she had had um, uh, a, a, an injury previously, and th- there was pain from that, which was causing all these other things. So it wasn't like there was an acute situation that was really happening. The paramedics showed up, uh, and I, I know the particular paramedics that showed up, and one of them is not particularly nice to patients and uh she immediately like got her guard back up you know and he starts like trying to assess her and she wouldn't so then i have to come back over to the bed and like sort of like reestablish the contact and get her to calm down and then we were able to assess her and in the end she thanked me very much for coming oh that was so nice of you i felt you know it was unnecessary but it's so nice of you to, to, to do this and then the daughter as well and she asked how she could like support the the rescue squad and all that and it was like a really nice way to start the morning, you know. Well, it, I mean, it's a, it was a really nice way to start the morning. But but what you did is you figured out the unlock to get her to ultimately feel understood by you, right? Exactly. Uh, and I think that so I, I find that I found myself in many situations like that, uh, particularly with with elderly people. Uh, but there is almost always a way of sort of establishing rapport. There's all sorts of tricks to it too. I mean, if you look at like Chris Voss, the nego- you know, have you absolutely, seen- yeah, right. So, have you read any of his stuff? Yeah. So you know about mirroring? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, like, that's what I would be. <laughs> I'm mirroring you. Yeah, right. There you go. <laughs> so, not just because we're both bald. No, no. Um, so there's there's all sorts of ways to do it, and it's not like it's a hack or a trick, and, and you can you can be really genuine about it and you can do this. And I think this is the conversation we need to get to is that you can do this at scale. Well, there, I I think the, the broader point of hope that you are conveying here is that there is magic to be had in making people feel that you understand them. And I think this is probably a good time to talk about the KKK. Okay. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the KKK. Let's do it. Are you familiar with who Daryl Davis is? No. This is good. So Daryl Davis is an R&B piano player who has accidentally fell into the business of trying to convert KKK members. That is to say, to get them to leave the KKK. The added rub is that he is a black man. And his most famous convert is a fellow by the name of Robert Kelly, who eventually became the Imperial Wizard of Maryland. Gotta love those names. And amazingly, this guy, Daryl Davis, built a friendship with Kelly, even as Kelly 
continued to sort of ascend the Ku Klux Klan leadership. And Davis would go to events with Kelly. He would observe the rituals. He would watch these incredibly, you know, horrifying chants and activities. And then this KKK guy would get up on the podium when it was time for him to give the speech and point to this black man in the audience, Daryl Davis, and say, I'd follow this man into hell and back. And he would call him a great friend. He still believed in the Klan's mission, but he had begun the process of creating a carve-out in his mind for this guy, Daryl Davis, who would come and spend time with him and talk to him and not accuse him of being a horrible person, but instead try to understand the position of him and other Klansmen. Now, the idea of treating a Klansman with respect, right, or at least with empathy is certainly something that I think most of us would have a very difficult time doing. Yeah, I don't think I can do that. Right, but here was this R&B guy, right, Um, you know, a, a... proud black man putting aside his first flinch to hate this guy and instead lean in. And eventually what happened was the absurdity of this Klansman's position in light of the friendship that he had with Davis became too much for him. He quit the Klan and he gifted his Klan robe to Daryl Davis. And so Davis now, you know, he he's a corporate speaker and all that kind of stuff. He proudly shows the number of clan robes he has received over time. Like scalps. Exactly. And, you know, you mentioned Chris Voss, who, you know, I'm sure has saved many, many lives through his his specific nature of engagement. And when I think about Chris Voss, when I think about what you did with this German woman, when I think about what Daryl Davis has done for several hundred clans people, getting them to, to quit, the idea of building rapport, the idea of not coming in in a way where immediately you're put on the defensive, if you're patient in some instances and in others you only have a few seconds, it can produce amazing results. And I think about this within the context of business. I think about this within the context of life. You know, the idea that a black man would not you know, seek to cancel, you know, these these people who obviously have abhorrent beliefs, but instead try to figure out a way to connect human to human with them is an extraordinary story of hope. The story that you gave is fantastic. Chris Voss, if for those of you know, for those of you who don't know who Chris Voss is, you should absolutely Google him. There is real magic to be had in how you engage with people. Yeah, and you know, if you look at it in terms of like customers, well, actually not even customer service. Let's talk about something very, very prescient for us at this point, which is the Board of Education in Princeton. <laughs> Things that recently happened, right? Sure. A big part of the issue has been the lack of rapport, I would say. The chasm that it feels like has formed between the Board of Education as a representative of the public and the actual public. People are talking past each other. Right. There's no customer service. There's no relatability. Right. There's no empathy. Uh, there, or at least that's, it's not coming across as any from them. And it's turned into, I mean, you know, most people listening to this podcast will not have the context for this, obviously, because it's around the world, but it's turned into an unbelievable shitstorm basically here because it, 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 it immediately became adversarial. Right. 
And I think that, so now bringing back to sort of business in general, right? I think that a lot of customer service issues reinforce this idea of adversary. And even, actually, honestly, I think the whole edict from, you know, ages ago about the customer is always right, sets you up for a war, (laughs) right? right? Because it's, it's basically saying like, it's them and us. Right. Counterparties. Exactly. And so... Uh, every day, I think I'm presented with uh, with uh, situations where companies do the customer experience and the customer service aspect wrong. And a lot of times people, un- I say unfortunately because it's not the best use of time sometimes, but sometimes people just really need to be heard. They really need to be heard. And if you have an issue and you're at a call center, you're calling into a call center where the person is not in any way connected with your community and they ask you for your name and your number and your account, you go through your spiel and then they say, okay, I'm going to have to refer you to another department and you get on the phone with somebody else at the call center and they ask you for your name Mm -hmm. and your number and your account. You immediately feel wronged. Yes. Right? There is no sense of rapport. There is no sense of actually caring one bit about the problem that I have. And that, sets us down a pathway, I think, which you've described, where the adversarial nature, um, even if it wasn't maybe intended, um, winds up coming out. And, you know, I have behaved in ways that I'm not proud of with people who have absolutely no, you know, culpability for whatever issue I'm having with said credit card company or airline or telephone company, etc. Like, but it, it, the, the, the pieces are put in place for us to have that adversarial relationship. The good news is the businesses themselves can do their part to opt out of that. You know, the, the challenge, though, is that there is no one way to skin the cat. In some of my coaching work, people say, you know, how can I become like Chris Voss? And the answer is you can't. You have to become like you. And people don't want to hear that. They wish that there was just some sort of magic formula, some page you can read in the book and have that kind of magic. It just doesn't work that way, at least I found. No, absolutely. And that's why I always say that thing about how if you want to learn what successful people do, don't look at what or how they – if you want to be like successful people, you shouldn't look at what they do. You should try to figure out how they think, right? Yeah. To understand yeah, sort of the mindset because that's something that we can begin to emulate and try to – inculcate into what we do but not but not copy exactly no no of course not yeah um it's always about a synthesis of information right so i i almost get offended i mean i shouldn't get offended but when you read those articles you know what are the you know eight things that elon musk eats for breakfast before 6 a.m yeah it's like you think that's going to enable you to become like elon musk my, one of my favorite interviews I've ever had was with Seth Godin. Yeah. Um, Marketing genius. Yeah. And so I, he, it was a great interview, and I, I mean, I think. And then I asked him at one point about his sort of daily routine. And I wasn't asking it for that reason. I was asking because he has a, a weird one, I think. And he stopped me. He's like, it doesn't matter. He's like, it's, it doesn't matter what my daily routine is for people. He's like, it's not like if somebody uses the same pencil that I use that they're going to be me. It doesn't work that way. I was like, oh, fair point. You know, <laughs> yeah, you're right. Uh, and it's true. It's uh, the the seven habits, the, the eight things, the 10 things, the morning journal, the routine. I hate that stuff. Because it also sets people up for failure, right? Because it's like, if you do that and it doesn't work, then what happened? It must be you. Because yeah. it works for them. 
Right, right. Or the people, and maybe I mentioned this in another podcast, I don't remember, but the people who read the Walter Isaacson book on Steve Jobs and then said, what I need to do is be more of an asshole. And mm-hmm. I, I remember like when that book was sort of flying off the shelves and you know everyone was talking about it, I remember a few instances where people were just much harsher with me and I was like, what the hell is going on? And it's like, you know, Steve Jobs is an asshole and look at what he got accomplished. Therefore, what I need to do is become more of an asshole too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say that he probably was being very much himself and that was that was who he was and that worked because it was part of a bigger personality. I have a total side note, but I have a really fun story I heard from Robert Kowasaki, who was the chief evangelist for Apple for a while. He said that uh, one day he was like at some meeting or something, I don't know, and, and Jobs walked in and said um, to him, I think, he was like, the, the, he's like, hey, the trash cans, they're not black enough. He's like, what do you mean they're, they're black? He's like, they're not black enough and walked away. He's <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, you know, that's, that's, but like, that's the equivalent of being like, just fucking get it done. Just do it and leave, you know, like, I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways to do that, but I thought that was a pretty badass way. It's not black enough. Um, but so <laughs> some practical, I, I'd say some practical implications out of this, right? One is that actually, and you brought up a really good one, which is, uh, take your name and number and then like transfer you to someone else and do it again. Yeah. Never make people change channels. That's something I've always told clients is like, do your best to not make people change channels, meaning meet them where they are. So if, if you have a service where people can text your company, which a lot of them do now, don't respond to the text and be like, oh, go to this website and talk to this chatbot and then call this number. That sucks, right? It's like they're reaching out to you in a communication method they're comfortable with and that they're willing to use. Don't make them do something else. God forbid you ever are on the phone with somebody and they're like, you have to send a letter or you have to send a fax. Like that's you know, good luck with that one. Right. So don't change channels. That's a big one. Another thing is that you can train, you know, you can't necessarily train empathy, but I think you can train empathetic language. And all of these people follow scripts for the most part. Everyone, all of these call centers, customer service, they're always refining. Well, hopefully they're refining, but they're always following scripts. It's very easy. Like, uh, surprisingly, I think Verizon actually provides very good customer service. It, they might not have in the past, but they do now. And one of the things is the last time I called, the first thing the person said was like, oh, I'm really sorry that that's happening. Like, let's see if we can get that fixed. And that makes a big difference, right? As opposed to, can I have your account number? It matters. Right. It's right. small, but it just sets the tone in whatever, what's uh, uh, your first impression is your last impression, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's the number two. And then, I think a third thing is that we have we need to have good processes for how customer service works, but a lot of those processes are set up to protect the company. And if we switch that around a little bit and we we create processes that elevate the customer, it's not going to hurt the business, which is what I think people are always afraid of. It's like if we do, you know, it's like if we give an inch then we give up a, a, an arm. But that's a very adversarial approach to it. Absolutely, it's an adversarial approach. And um, it's a missed opportunity, right? Because let's face it, there are a lot of businesses out there that provide great service or sell a great product, but 
their other great services and their other great products, and we live in a very competitive environment. And if you don't take the opportunity to make people feel appreciated, to make people feel as though they are cared for, even if there are some additional costs to it, and most of the time there's not, you are missing an opportunity to differentiate yourself. And exactly. that is an unforced error of pretty significant proportion, in my opinion. Yeah, 100%. And and the last thing I would just say as a piece of that is that we, we need to shift the focus in some ways to providing solutions, right? Because there is a relationship to some extent between you and your customers, uh, but we need to be looking at solutions. So meaning that people who are doing the customer service, those agents, those scripts, all that stuff have to have that leeway to actually generate a solution, right? It's not just like, does it check this box or not? Well, I think the solution that we should all keep in mind is really, it's important to learn German and, and <laughs> learn it because you never know when a customer is going to or always Yiddish. speak German or Yiddish, right? All right. On that note, thank you so much, Art.